Thank you, Chris and Teresa Brown. Thanks, guys. We appreciate that very much. Uh, some of you know, uh, last couple of weeks here, I've been sitting down while I teach because I hurt my Achilles tendon, and it's getting better, but we're doing classes this afternoon, and that's a long uh, time for me to be on it, so I'm going to sit down again this week, but I'm making good progress. We're plugging along. Uh, we're moving through the book of Philippians. We're doing verse by verse, and today we're going to talk about the truth that happiness can be learned. Uh, many people think happiness is simply a matter of luck. If your circumstances line up and, and they're good, then you're happy. But there's really nothing you can do about it. It's just sort of whatever happens, happens. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that happiness can be learned. There are certain qualities that if you learn them and build them into your life, your happiness in life will go up. There are certain qualities that if you learn those and build those into your life, your unhappiness will go up. You, you can identify qualities that will increase your happiness. You can identify qualities that will increase your unhappiness. And if, I mean, you can do this. If we, if we made a, two columns, if we had a happiness column and an unhappiness column, and I just give you some terms, you could identify which column those would go in. If I said impatience, uh, that goes in the unhappiness column. I mean, impatient people are unhappy people. Patient people are happier. Uh, if I said cruelty, cruel people are unhappy. They're unhappy people. Kind people are happier. If I said arrogance, you got, uh, unhappy. Arrogant people are unhappy people. Humble people, uh, they're, they're happier. You can identify qualities that will increase your happiness. And this weekend, we're going to look in the book of Philippians, and we're going to look at four qualities that if you build them into your life, your happiness, you'll discover joy. Your happiness is going to go up. Now, Philippians 2, 19 through 30, Paul's in Rome, in prison, awaiting execution for preaching the gospel. He writes this letter to a church in Greece in the city of Philippi. That's why it's called the letter to the Philippians. Paul had started the church in Philippi from scratch, led some people to the Lord, started the church. The church had given him money over the years to help fund his missionary journeys, and now they had sent some money to him to help meet his needs while he's in prison in Rome. And this, this book is actually a thank you letter from Paul to the Philippians. We're going to talk more about that next week. But in the middle of this letter, Paul gives us some personal information about two other gentlemen. I'm just going to read this out loud to you. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone else looks after his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I as soon as I see how things go with me, I'm confident that I myself will come soon. Paul has some confidence, some hope here that he's going to get out of prison and be able to go back to Philippi. I think it is necessary to also send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. The Philippians had sent the financial gift to Paul, but through Epaphroditus. And now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. 
Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him back to you so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Now, in this passage, there are four qualities that if we learn to build those into our life, we're going to discover joy. Our happiness is going to go up. And we see these in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul endorses these two guys as role models. They are good examples. He says of Timothy in verse 20, I have no one else like him. If Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, says there's nobody in the world like Timothy, you need to pay attention to that guy. And in fact, two books of the Bible are written to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. He is an important character. Paul says, I have no one else like him. And then he says about Epaphroditus, I want you to welcome him and honor him because he nearly died for my sake. Now, where does nearly dying intersect with discovering joy? Okay? That's what we're going to find out here as we look at this. Paul says, I'm sending these two guys to you for three reasons. In verse 19, he says, so that I may be cheered. It's going to cheer Paul up to send these guys to Philippi. Verse 28, he says, so that you may be glad. It's going to make the Philippians glad to have these two guys come and see them. And in verse 28, he says, so that I may have less anxiety. So what's going on with these guys is going to make uh, me happy, you happy. It's going to reduce everybody's anxiety. Uh, So what are the four character qualities that you and I need to build into our life that will make us happy, make the people around us happy, and reduce everybody's anxiety? Let's find out. Here we go. First thing you have to learn is to shift the focus away from myself. Starting point of all happiness is to shift the focus away from myself. If all you live for is I, me, mine, I, me, mine, you are going to be an absolutely miserable person. Because if you want to be happy, you've got to shift the focus off of yourself. And Paul gives Timothy as an example of this in verses 21 and 22. He says, I have nobody else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everybody else looks out for his own interests. Paul said, there's nobody like Timothy who looks out for the genuine interest in other people, not just himself. You know, unselfish people are very, very rare. Paul says, Timothy takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He genuinely cares about you. Others only care about themselves. Now, what we're talking about here is a matter of focus. The first key to happiness is you've got to shift the focus away from yourself and onto other people. Now, you don't do that normally. None of us do. Our normal focus is on ourself. You have to intentionally train yourself to do the opposite, to shift the focus away from yourself. Philip's translation of this verse says this about people. They're all wrapped up in their own affairs. Circle that phrase, wrapped up. For you single adults out there, let me just give you some some fatherly advice here, okay? It is better to sit at home without a date than to go out on a date with somebody who's all wrapped up in their self. I mean, ladies, a guy who is all wrapped up in himself is no gift. Guys, a woman who's all wrapped up in herself, no gift. When people are all wrapped up in their own agenda, their own affairs, they're not caring, they're not looking out for anybody else, and over time, that will wound, weaken, even wear out a relationship. 
It just happens all the time. Philippians 2.4 in the message says, Don't be so obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. Now, if you did that, do you think you'd be happier? The answer is yes. Yes, you would. But it is not an easy thing to do because in our culture, in our very nature, we are, are self-centered. Uh, researchers studied one million books over the last 200 years in America. 100 books over 200 years. And they compared the words that were used then to the words that are used now. And they looked at the words that have increased in use and the words that have decreased in use. The words that have increased in use today are I, me, my, choice, unique, and special. I am so special. We're just all so special. Yeah, the words that you don't hear much today are responsibility and prayer. Now, what's that tell us about our culture? You know, let me just show you some ads that illustrate where this is going because we don't even realize how, how we're being brainwashed and influenced by this. First ad, this is a Coca-Cola ad. And Coca-Cola did an ad that, that says happiness is something that you drink. I mean, there's a Coke bottle and the slogan says, Open happiness. Coke says, if you just buy our product, that's the key. If you just buy our product, you don't even have to drink it. If you just open a Coke, you're happy. <laughs> open happiness. Okay? Audi. Audi came out with one that says, joy is found in something you drive. It says joy, all those O's are the Audi symbol. Joy finally has meaning. Joy is something you drive. A BMW responded with that and said, no, no, no. Joy is BMW. That's where the joy is. Pepsi says, live for now. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about anybody else. Just live for the moment. Live for now. Sprite says, obey your thirst. You know, whatever your appetites are, whatever your urges are, whatever your needs are, obey that. Live according to that. You see how these messages just over and over and over are telling you, it's all about you, it's all about you, it's all about you. Burger King, have it your way. I mean, that's not bad advice when you're trying to get a burger, but it's real bad advice in relationships. You know, if you always have to have it your way in a relationship, the relationship's going to implode. And Burger King has even gone, now they're changing it to be your way. I mean, so now a hamburger is not just something you have your way, a hamburger is something you can be. <laughs> you can be a Whopper. See what they're doing? They're, they're just feeding on this drive that we have to, to serve ourselves. Now, there's been some counterculture positioning on this. Donut Company came out with this one. I love donuts. They're not self-centered at all. Okay? So, the bottom line, now that you're all thirsty and craving a donut, yeah. Bottom line is our culture teaches you that it's all about you, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. So I have to intentionally learn to shift the focus off myself in order to be happy. Otherwise, I'm just buzzed on sugar and charged up on fat. Okay? Number two. Some of you have experienced that. Number two. If you're going to learn to be happy, you must become someone that people trust. Proverbs 13, 15. Those who can't be trusted are on the road to ruin. The more people trust you, the happier you will be. If people don't trust you, you're not going to be happy. If no one trusts you, you will be miserable. 
Because you've got to learn to be trustworthy in order to be happier. And Paul uses Timothy as an example of this. Verse 22. Timothy has proven himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. He said, I've seen Timothy in all kinds of circumstances, and he's the real deal. Timothy is authentic. He is genuine. He, he's trustworthy, dependable. You can count on Timothy. Good uh, God's Word translation says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be. Do people know what kind of person you have proved to be? Are you trustworthy? If not, you're not very happy. Anytime you go to the bank for a loan, before they loan you any money, they do a credit check on you. They, they check and find out, are you trustworthy? Are you dependable? Are you credible? Do you keep your word? Do you say what you will say you will do? Do you pay your bills on time? Let me give you a little secret. Everybody around you is doing a credit check on your life all the time. Everybody around you is checking your credit all the time. Are you trustworthy? Do you keep your word? Do you say, uh, do what you say you're going to do? Can you be relied upon? You know, Paul says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be. Timothy passed his credit check. And if you're going to be happy, you've got to learn to be consistent, dependable. You've got to develop a reputation for reliability. How do you do that? Two ways on your outline. First one, live with integrity. Integrity means my actions match my words. What I say is what you get. What I believe is how I live. Reliable friends who do what they say are like cool drinks in sweltering heat. Refreshing. Isn't that a great verse? You know, can people count on you? If people can count on you, that's refreshing. Look at the opposite, Proverbs 25, 19. Putting confidence in an unreliable person is like chewing with a toothache or walking on a broken foot. Chewing with a toothache or walking on a broken foot. Man, that communicates. The greatest ability is dependability. Reliability is more important than any other ability in life. I mean, you may be the most talented guy on the planet, but if you don't show up at the right time when stuff needs to be done, what's the point of the talent? You know, if you've got the ability but no reliability, what good is it? You know, are you creditworthy? Are you worthy of trust? Are you a person of integrity? Second way I become someone people trust is I keep my promises. Psalm 15:4. These people always do what they promise, no matter how much it may cost them. If I say I'll do it for this price, that's the price I do it for. If I say I'll do it at this time, that's the time that I do it. Whether it's convenient or not, it may cost me something to do it. But I keep my word no matter what it costs. And when you live like that, people can trust you. And because people trust you, your happiness goes up. Because you're not always having to cover for yourself. You're not always having to defend yourself. And so you have more joy. Fourth, third skill you need to learn. Learn how to work well with others. That's the skill of collaboration. You know, if you don't work well with other people, you'll be unhappy. Because most of life is spent working with other people. So what do I need to learn in order to work with other people? Two things on your outline. First one, learn to cooperate. Cooperate. That is not something that we do automatically. You have to learn it. Parents, you know that. One of the first things you have to teach a little kid is how to cooperate. 
how to get along with other people. Paul identifies Epaphroditus as an example of this. Verse 25, I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. Paul says, Epaphroditus, he's a team player. He's not a lone ranger, a prima donna, a rogue. He's no diva. This guy knows how to work with other people. Paul uses three relational terms to describe him, three teamwork terms. He says, my brother, my fellow worker, my soldier. He calls him my brother because the church is the family of God. 133 times the Bible uses family terms to refer to the church because we're a family. You know, you're sitting around all these other people. The people in here who believe in Jesus Christ, they're your brothers and your sisters. We're family. Turn to the person next to you and say, how you doing, bro? How you doing, sis? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No sibling rivalry in the church. We're just family. Okay? And then he says we're a fellowship. He's a fellow worker. We have the same common goal and purpose to fulfill. We all have the same great commandment, the same great commission. We're all on the same mission. We are to work together in fellowship. He says my fellow soldier. And would you agree that life is a battle? Yeah, it is every day. And we all face the same enemy. We face a common enemy. And we need to support, defend, encourage, and protect each other. Now, where do I learn to be part of a family? Where do I learn to be in fellowship and, and, and work well with others? Where do I learn to fight for each other? Not with each other, but for each other. Where do I learn that? Well, there, there's a, a word for that. Small groups. It's small groups. You don't learn it in a big meeting like this. You don't learn that kind of stuff sitting in rows, looking at a guy with a sore foot. Okay? You learn to do that sitting in circles face-to-face with other people in a small group. It's in the small group where you learn to support, defend, encourage, and protect each other. And I love my Tuesday morning men's small group because that's the kind of stuff we do for each other. The message paraphrase in one of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. Learn to cooperate and your happiness will go up. Because there's no happiness in contention. Next, I need to learn to be considerate. Considerate. The more considerate you are of other people, the happier you will be. The more inconsiderate you are of other people, the more unhappy you're going to be. I mean, think of this. You've seen it happen. You're out in a restaurant, and there's somebody there who is inconsiderate to the waiter or waitress. Is that person happy? No. They're not happy. Neither is the server. Neither are the people they're with. Neither are the people sitting around them. I mean, there's no happiness. There's no joy in being inconsiderate. Paul says you've got to be thoughtful, kind, sympathetic toward other people. And again, he gives Epaphroditus as an example. He says, now I must send him back to you because he longs to see all of you. He has been worried about your distress since you heard that he was sick. Two examples of consideration here. First, Paul is considerate of his fellow worker. He says, Epaphroditus is homesick. He wants to go back home. I I need to be considerate of that, of his yearnings, his needs, his desire there. And Epaphroditus is considerate of the Philippians. They'd heard that he was sick. They heard he'd almost died. They're concerned for his welfare. They're distressed. Is he okay or not? So he's he's longing to go back so they can see, oh, yeah, he is okay and, and can put their fears at rest. You know, the more considerate you learn to be of other people's needs and fears, the more happy happiness you're going to have. More considerate you learn to be as a husband, as a wife, the happier your marriage is going to be. 
If you are inconsiderate, you'll have an unhappy marriage. It'll kill your marriage. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says you must, notice this is not an option, you must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate, cultivating a life in common. Cultivate a life in common. He's saying it takes hard work. It's not an option. It's something. How many of you are growing a garden this year? Any of, you, any of you gardeners out there? You know what this word cultivate means. You know that's a lot of hard work. You know, stuff that bears fruit and bears vegetables doesn't just pop up out of the ground automatically and produce a harvest. You know, the stuff that pops up out of the ground automatically, those are weeds. Okay? But if you're going to grow fruit or if you're going to grow vegetables, you've got to till the soil, you've got to break up the clods, you've got to plant the seeds, you've got to water it, you've got to fertilize it, you've got to weed it, you have to cultivate it. And it's a lot of work. The problem in most marriages is the couple stop working. When you stop working on a marriage, the marriage stops working. And people will give up on a marriage rather than work on a marriage because it's hard work to cultivate a life in common. It's hard work. You've got to be thoughtful. You've got to think through the effect of your words, your actions, even your attitudes. People say, I just say what I think. I just go with my feelings. There's a word for that. Inconsiderate. Rude. You know, it doesn't work. Any idiot can just say what they think. But it takes intelligence, it takes character to ponder your thoughts, your words, your actions, and think, how is this going to affect everybody else in this household? How is this going to affect my marriage? How is this going to affect my kids? What are the ramifications of this? Paul's an example of this, 1 Corinthians 10, 33. He says, I don't just do what I like or what's best for me. How many times do you hear, I've got to do what's best for me? Paul says, I don't, I don't do that. But I do what's best for everyone so that they may be saved. Paul says, I put conversion ahead of comfort. I put the conversion of other people ahead of, uh, ahead of comfort. Because there is tremendous joy in seeing people cultivate a life in common, especially when that life is around Jesus Christ. Number four, if I want to be happy in life, the fourth choice I need to make is to live for something worth dying for. Until you have that, you're not going to experience the ultimate happiness in life. I must learn to live for something worth dying for. Most people today are giving first-class allegiance to second-class causes. And those causes are betraying them. We, we give a big-time commitment to small-time causes that aren't going to last. Aren't going to last. And so when, whenever you're, with your time, your energy, your talent, your treasure, even your thoughts, you need to ask yourself, how much is this going to matter in five years? How much is this going to matter in ten years? How much is this going to matter in a thousand years? Because if you're making a big-time commitment to something that's only going to last as long as your life lasts, then when you're done, it's done. The best use of your life is to invest it in that which will outlast it. You need to live for something worth dying for. And until you figure out what that is, you're not living, you're just existing. You're just coasting. Coasting to the end. Paul says about Epaphroditus, Indeed, he was very ill and he almost died. He risked his life for the work of Christ. That's living for something worth dying for. 
and was at the point of death while trying to do for me the things you couldn't do because you were far away. And Paul's in prison in Rome. Philippian church is 800 miles away. Philippians decide to send a care package to Paul in prison. There are no planes, trains, and automobiles. There's no FedEx, no UPS. 800 miles to deliver this offering. And Epaphroditus, a guy in the church, raises his hand and says, I'll take it. He says, I'll trek 800 miles through robbers and thieves and storms and rock slides. I'll walk 800 miles. Probably walk most of the way. I'll walk 800 miles to take a gift to a guy in prison. It says he risked his life. In Greek, there's literally a gambling term. He gambled his life for the cause of Christ. Epaphroditus was God's godly gambler. Took a risk. And then on this 800-mile mission to take this offering to Rome, he, he gets some kind of a disease, and in spite of sickness, almost to death, he completes his mission. He finishes what he starts. No wonder he's worthy, worthy of honor. So let me ask you a couple of questions. First, what commitment have you started that you haven't finished? What commitment have you made that you need to keep? Maybe it's a commitment you made to your husband or your wife. Maybe a commitment to your kids or to a friend. Maybe even to your boss. Maybe it's a commitment you made to God. And you need to fulfill that commitment that you started in order to prove that you are reliable and trustworthy and keep your promise. I mean, you know if you do that, your joy will go up. Because you know how sad it makes you to realize, I haven't, I haven't completed that task. There's no joy in that. Second question, is your commitment to Christ deep enough to cause you to risk your life? Most people will follow Christ when it's convenient, comfortable, and doesn't cost them anything. Are you willing to follow Christ when it's inconvenient, uncomfortable, and costly? When it costs you, if you were in the Philippian church, would you have given to this offering? Would you have given of your resources to help Paul, a guy 800 miles away, in prison, awaiting execution? They may execute the guy before the money even gets there. You know, Paul tells us that the Philippians gave out of their need. This wasn't just excess. This wasn't out of their bonus. These people dug deep. They sacrificed in order to give this offering. That's why God says to honor people like this. That's why God honored them by putting this book in the Bible. I mean, do you think God's plan is just to let you coast through life without your faith ever costing you something? As long as you're alive, God's going to be testing you with risky decisions for His sake. Not, not decisions to do something stupid or rash, but just decisions where it causes you to grow and strengthen your faith and increases your trust and demonstrates your maturity and your trustworthiness. God is calling you to be a part, to play a role in what He wants to do through the church. This church. I'm absolutely certain of that, or, or He wouldn't have led you here. Why would God bring you here? Just to watch? No. This week I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you to pray a very short prayer. I'm going to encourage you to make it the theme of this week. Two-word prayer. Use me. Would you just commit to praying that prayer this week? Just say, God, use me. It's a short prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. It's also the key to happiness. Because it gets the focus off yourself. It pushes you to be trustworthy. It prompts you to work well with other people.
And it calls you to live for something greater than yourself, something that's worth dying for. And God blesses those who serve him even when it's inconvenient. Look what Jesus said. Jesus gave the secret to happiness in Mark 8, 35. He says, only those who give away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. Only those who give their lives away for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, only those who live for something worth dying for will ever know what it means to really live. Because you're just existing if you're not living for a purpose greater than yourself. And the happiest people on earth are the ones who get the focus off of themselves. They learn to be trustworthy. They learn how to work well with others. And they are willing to take risks in faith. Before we pray today, I, I want to just talk to you about an opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, a while back, this typhoon Yolanda came into the Philippines and destroyed the city of Tacloban. And in the spring, we sent a team over there to help with relief efforts. We had some guys who, who flew into Tacloban and, and helped uh, clean up after that typhoon. Well, I got word from Jeff Long with Kids International Ministries that the relief efforts are winding down and they're moving into the development phase. Okay, they've got to come back in here and rebuild the city. And what will happen is the Filipinos will just take all this debris that you see and they'll start piling it up and turning it into houses. And they'll just move into these slum-like conditions in these ramshackle shacks, and that's no way to live. And so we, what the guys did last time is they helped establish a ministry center. There was a, a nice big house that hadn't been destroyed. They went in, did some demolition, and turned it into a ministry center. And what Jeff wants to do now is to establish some anchor homes in this neighborhood that's going to spring up. And to create some housing for some key people so they can begin to start things like churches and clinics and schools to minister in that, in that area. And so he's asking for teams to come and help build some houses. And you can build a house in, in that area for $4,000. Basically, it'll be about a 10 by 10 concrete slab with concrete block walls and a metal roof. And for these folks, it will be a palace. And so we've got a team of guys who, who are planning to go back over end of August, 1st of September. They're paying their own way to get there. So anything you give can go toward providing the funds to be able to build some of these houses. And so I'd encourage you just, just to pray and say, God, you know, use me. Maybe I can help with this. It's a worthwhile project. It'll make a difference for Christ in a very needy area. Let's pray together. If you want to be happy, I'd invite you just to pray this prayer with me. Just in the quietness of your own heart and mind, just say, God, I want to learn to be happy. I want to discover joy in my life. So help me to get the focus off myself, Lord. I am really sick and tired of looking at me. Uh, help me to become somebody that people can trust, to be reliable, dependable, trustworthy, to say what I say I'll do, to keep my promises. Lord, I need to learn how to get along better with others, to cooperate, to be considerate, to be a team member, to, to work with people who are different than me, to work with people who are difficult. I, I want to be like Paul, who said, I don't just do what's best for me, but I do what's best to bring people to Christ. And if you're married, would, would you just say, Lord, help me to cultivate a life in common with my spouse? to be considerate, my spouse and my kids, and to do the hard work I need to do to make my marriage grow and flourish and bear fruit. 
Lord, help me to live for something worth dying for. Help, help me this week to have the courage to just pray, use me. Lord, to get the focus off myself and to be ready to respond in the way that you call me to. Give me something greater to live my life for than just myself. Maybe you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ to come into your life, to be your Savior, to be your Lord. This would be a great opportunity to, to open your heart and life. Say, Jesus, please come in. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Heal me. Restore me. Give me the strength. Bring me that eternal, abundant life that you offer. Help me to discover the joy that comes from living with you. God, give us the power of your presence, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.